Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Today is a very special episode. It is our New Year's episode, and to start off... Oh, wait, I'm Mackenzie. I'm Prashina. And I'm Trent. Happy New Year! Happy New Year! (laughs) 2023, everyone! Woo! God bless. (laughs) May it be better than Um, our last five years. Maybe the best year yet. Isn't that a more positive framing? Uh, Yes. (laughs) We'll go with that one. Yeah. Trent, why don't you start us off with a very special treat? Um, If you didn't listen to last week's episode, you might be a little lost. So this is your warning to go back and listen to last week's episode because Trent has a very special gift for all of us. I do. Take it away, Trent. I feel like Mm -hmm. there's no better way to start the new year than with a good laugh or an eye roll, depending on how this joke goes. I'm so excited. Yeah, so this joke came up last episode. Um, My dad liked me to tell it in front of people because, in fairness, this joke goes better coming from, like, a wide-eyed five-year-old than Mm -hmm. it does from a a cynical 28-year-old, but we'll do what we can. So, all right, once upon a time, there was a big-mouthed frog, all right? He had a very big mouth. It was huge. It was ridiculous. And so the big mouth frog wanted to, like, you know, make some new friends. And he was very curious. You know, he, he was being that he had a big mouth. He was kind of obsessed with food. So his opener would be asking people, you know, like what they ate and stuff, because why not? Why not bond over food? We all do it. Don't pretend. Right. So he's like wandering through the forest and he comes upon a little squirrel and he goes, hello, I'm the big mouth frog. What do you eat? I eat flies. And the squirrel said, Oh, hello, I eat um, nuts and berries. And he said, That's cool. And he went on his way. Right? So he's like, traveling along, living his best little life. And he comes upon a hedgehog. And he's like, Hello, Mr. Hedgehog. Hello, Mr. Hedgehog. What do you eat? And the hedgehog said, no one knows what hedgehogs eat. <laughs> Do you know what hedgehogs eat? No. No one knows. It's a mystery. And the big mouth frog said, That's confusing. I eat flies. And he hopped along his way. 
He's like hopping along. <laughs> do, 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 do. So he comes upon a, a, a river. He's from a pond, right? And this is more water than he's ever seen in his whole life. And suddenly an alligator comes out of said river. It's a scary river. And he says, hello, Mr. Alligator. I'm the big mouth frog. What do you like to eat? I eat flies. And the alligator said, I like to eat big mouth frogs. And the big mouth oh, no. frog said, oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's the whole joke. Get it? Because okay. he has a big mouth. I get it. I get he has it. a big mouth, and then he goes, Oh. <laughs> like with a small mouth. You do have to be in person to see the theatricality of it. Yeah, like, you're welcome. It's funny. And that's why it's funny from a five-year-old <laughs> and not an adult human. It's cute. I like that, yeah. though. But that's also one of those jokes that you tell kids and they just like... Ah. Oh, my gosh. It's the fun. When you're, like, when you're a child, that's the funniest joke that has literally ever existed in, in all of the world. So... Absolutely. And I was very proud of myself to be able to tell it. I didn't remember the animals, clearly. Like, the hedgehog <laughs> was not part of it, but I couldn't remember what the animals were. Um, so that was my own little addition. Okay. You're welcome. Because what funny. do hedgehogs eat? Lettuce. Do they eat lettuce? Yeah. Is they lettuce eat, like, just goop. growing wild in the forest, <laughs> Brashina? What about wild, <laughs> wild hedgehogs? Not, not pet hedgehogs, all right? The big mouth frog wasn't in a pet store. They you, also eat, like, nuts and berries. I, I know a lot. Uh, listen, I did a lot of research. Foragers? I did a lot of research into small rodents as a child because I wanted a guinea pig. And my mom was like, that just looks like a rat. And so I was like, what about these other things? And I did a lot of research. I had a lot of pets as a child. My mother was a saint and it was excessive. I love it. I had guinea pigs at one point. They you had dogs cute. instead. I which had I was a like, dog okay. as well. Did you look it up, Mackenzie? Apparently. All I we, did. Yeah. <laughs> It's kind of nasty. Oh, God, I'm so ready. What do they eat? Just bugs of different variations. Dang bugs, Brashina. Thought you knew so much. Darn it. That must have been one of the other rats. See, no one no one knew what hedgehogs ate until just now. <laughs> You're all very welcome. This is now a scientific educational podcast. Yeah. Wow. Look at us. I know. I like Branching it. out. Educating young minds yeah so you've started the new year with a joke and with a fun fact <laughs> hedgehogs eat bugs that's gross i like it they're not well, as cute anymore are know. they so we're here not to talk about hedgehogs shockingly that's a future episode for you to look forward to mm. um we're here to talk about our past year you know the new year is a wonderful time to reflect upon from where we've come you know mm -hmm. a year's a long time when it's when you're in the midst of it it sometimes doesn't feel like a very long time you turn around and you're like whoa where did these months go but yeah. the fact of the matter is is that you are like doing things during that time shockingly so the new year is a beautiful time to look back and say all right like what what did i really do this last year what did i learn what happened what do i want what do i want to take with me mm -hmm. and so being that we're here talking about, you know, theater, usually, um, that's what we're going to reflect on is from our theater careers this past year. What were the highlights? What were the lessons learned? What were the mountaintop moments? And we'll, we'll see what comes of that. Mm. So, Mackenzie, why don't you kick us off with a thought? Okay, are we doing, are we like 
doing show and tell and going like one at a time or are we just like dropping our list um uh, we'll see what happens just go and brashina and i will be spirit led okay 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 um okay i had a list and then i'm listening to trent talk just now and i said i arguably didn't include the coolest thing i did this year on my list because i blocked it from my brain for some reason um i wrote a play yeah you Hell did. yeah she did i <laughs> i did okay well i didn't okay it's more of an adaptation but um Still wrote this it. is like the first thing i've ever written I yeah sort of um it's called uh, I feel like I'm just doing self-plugging but like no we're just gonna hit full send and self-plug um it's called frailty thy name is woman and I spent this whole past year like working on it and perfecting it and if you couldn't guess it is Shakespeare um and so like what it is is it's like this collection of scenes in Shakespeare that explore varying degrees of misogyny within the scenes and um it's it, it became a major like passion project for me and something that like I'm incredibly proud of and because I had never like dabbled in playwriting before um and it became this piece that I am like really incredibly proud of um and so I guess this is my plug to tell you to try new things in theater that really scare you because really cool things can happen from it um and i so i've i've read it i've worked with mckinsey on it a little bit and it's really it's really cool how you can take these disparate pieces it's the same author but it's all different place right Mm -hmm. and so she's taken these pieces of disparate works and woven them together into something that has something brand new to say right Mm -hmm. and that's one of the cool things about theater and about stories is that you can take something old and make it new she didn't rework it in the sense of new words it's all Shakespeare's words but the way that it's pieced together the way that she has staged it has made it something brand new and that's Mm -hmm. one of the really cool things that we get to do as artists is reuse and recycle you know and it it really actually does become something new when you do that intentionally yeah i honestly think that that's what makes adaptation some of the like best work is that you're actually like taking the time to go through a thought and like pull the different other threads that are coming from it and so like you get something that's really interesting i mean yours was not the only adaptation this year we had a we had one at the public called Fat Ham, where they're reimagining Hamlet. Like, reimaginings and adaptations are some of the most, like, inventive work that we have because you're actually, like, f- you get to take something that's fully fleshed out and flesh it out even more. Mm-hmm. So it becomes something new. So congratulations, Mackenzie. That's amazing. She's a playwright. <laughs> um. Building on adaptations and like cool things that I saw, another highlight of the year for me was seeing a play at the Globe called, it was Henry VIII, The Globe, or All is True. Um, And okay, Mm. I don't like it as a play usually. However, it was an adaptation of Henry VIII, which is traditionally not very kind to women, very male-centric. And but what they did with this, what the adapter did and what the cast did is that they were able to make this piece that is like, very sexist and very mm, mm, a little bit boring I'll be honest and make it this most 
the most like empowering female driven piece ever they added text they added music and songs and they they added the song called we women and all of the women in the cast were like singing the song and like just standing there singing in their power while in the first it ended the first act and then it ended the whole play and in the first act you have henry running around like an absolute man child like popping balloons symbolic of children like at a um like at a gender reveal party running around like an absolute child and then at the spoiler alert um the play ends with elizabeth the first being born um and it was an entirely like different energy and just like the women were just standing there and like singing this song and like beating their chest and stamping their feet um to create like the music for this and just them standing there and it like drove Henry away like off of the stage of his own play and just seeing the way that adaptations that of, of again of these old pieces are just new life is being breathed into them to create these like new and poignant pieces of theater is just like so incredible and I think just drives further the point that classical theater and classic works when done correctly and handled with care can be quite groundbreaking and still have new and wonderful and beautiful things to say. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I also think that they're supposed to be updated. Like the reason that Shakespeare was relevant back then was because he was talking about a lot of the things that were happening at the time. And so in order for that to still be relevant to us, we have to adapt it to our modern, modern circumstances in order for it to make sense. Yeah. You know, well, in, in order for it to, like, have the same impact that it mm -hmm. would have had at the time, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a how he writes is a commentary on his social situation. Mm -hmm. And so if we're trying to do, not to say that there's not a place for period theater. However, even when doing period pieces, there's a way to bring that forward, right? Mm -hmm. Because history repeats itself, but it doesn't look the same over and over. Thematically, it's the same. Sometimes even circumstantially, it looks very similar. But you have to do the work of understanding that history to bring it forward and think about what about that history is cycling through currently. Mm -hmm. So I think even if you're doing a period piece, you have to do some of that work in order for it to resonate. Otherwise, it's just th like looking at a piece of history that is contained within itself. Mm -hmm. um, and that isn't going to stick with people in the same way. Mm -hmm. It's like the difference between those of us who had really great history teachers in school and those of us who had like football coaches pretending to be history teachers in school. Right. It, sorry, not to like yes. call anyone out. There are some good football coaches that are good teachers, and then there are also the ones that I'm talking about, and we all know that. Mm. Um, but you know, mm -hmm. th there's a difference, right, between like the history staying inside of the textbook and the history coming out of that textbook to be explained as something that is alive and still ongoing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about you, Brashina? From your this last year, mm, from this last year, I really had to like again. I had to sit down and think about it. I was like, "Oh my gosh, what did I do this year?" <laughs> um, and thankfully, I updated my resume. <laughs> so <laughs> I had a handy dandy guide um, of the things that I did this year. Um, one of my personal favorite things that I did was um, being in Fairview um, and getting to play Jasmine. I loved that role so much. I love that play. 
Um, and it was super interesting. It was a nice convergence of all the things that I have studied and um, work on. Like it was really me like living out my personal, um, my personal uh, artist theory of being in diverse work and um, putting on work that provokes thought um, and putting on work that provokes people to think about the people in the margins. Um, and I really loved it. I had a great time doing it. And Fairview is such an interesting play because of the convention that it uses, where mm -hmm. it's basically like you're watching TV. Like it, it employs so many different conventions. Like you're supposed to be watching a TV with these people on stage. And then it's revealed that it's actually a TV show. And then it becomes the sitcom is mirroring, um, you know, what's happening in uh, the people that are watching it. And so it becomes a very interesting show all of a sudden. Um, and I really loved getting to do that um, and getting to put that on for the first time in Texas. Like, yeah. <laughs> it was a regional premiere. Hello. I, I haven't been in a regional premiere before. So that was well, really now cool. You have. I have. I have. Um, and that was, it was so much fun. I loved the cast um, that we got to work with. Um, and it was so much fun. I just, it was great. I had such a good time that I was like, this is one of the best shows that I think I've. I've worked on yeah it was one of the highlights of my um theater year as well mm -hmm. it um i got to be one of the directors on the show and it is such a hard script um it is brilliant it is masterfully written mm -hmm. it there's a reason it won the pulitzer in yes. 2019 right i mean wow mm -hmm. um it's not the first Pulitzer play that I've directed, but it's the most difficult. And it was challenging and it was rewarding and it was so unlike anything that our audiences had seen before. People were talking about it for weeks afterward. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it resonates and it strikes a chord and it forces the audience's hand in some ways in terms of their own participation. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things I love about it is that it peels back the way in which audiences are a part of what's going on, right? Mm -hmm. You, It's so easy to think of audiences as just bystanders but really they are participants mm -hmm. in what is happening on stage. And Fairview does a really good job of pointing out to the audience that they are in fact participating. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things I love about it. And I think it's one of the reasons that it sticks with people so much is they feel like they were a part of something um, mm -hmm. as opposed to just watching something. Mm -hmm. It is really cool. I, li I like it a lot. Yeah, that's a good one. It's a very yes, cool piece. So we, part of, we were part of a regional premiere. We yes. were. We were. Um, and then I also got to direct a world premiere mm -hmm. this year. Um, you heard a whole episode about it, so I won't go into crazy amounts of detail. Um, but Amy Tofty's Cardboard Castles Hung on Walls was a phenomenal theatrical experience for me. It's just, it was such an incredible script and getting to work with her closely on it was such a wonderful experience as well she's such a talented playwright and that script deserves all of the productions I mean it is just so unique in its ability to be so relevant to any community in which it's performed um, and relevant by her design 
you know and mm-hmm. i and so i i that was a really cool experience for me as well it's been a it's been a year of firsts a regional premiere a world premiere um and it's really cemented for me my passion for working with new work you know that I that's the types of things that I like to do theatrically is bringing stories to audiences that they won't have heard before and that it's still fresh enough that I get to leave my little imprint on it as it goes on its merry way into the world mm-hmm. and it's such a ugh, the place so good I was so glad that I got to see it um, when it premiered because it was amazing like it's and you wouldn't it's one of those plays where sometimes you can tell where they've like changed things and you're like oh this isn't really working but the way that amy wrote it is that it really is so adaptable in Mm -hmm. so many ways and trent did such an amazing job of uh, cutting up those pieces and directing them in a way that it all still flowed and made sense so it worked it worked really really well and i was so so glad to see it this year yeah. yeah and it's it's also set in an art gallery and you got to perform it yeah. in an art gallery mm-hmm. yeah on-site theater it was very cool very cool effect but it's been it's been an interesting year i i actually like went back to some classic shows Mm-hmm. Um, we did Romeo and Juliet over the yeah, summer. Yeah, <laughs> all three of us were involved in that. I directed yeah. it. Uh, Mackenzie was Juliet, mm-hmm. and Brashina was Mercutio. Yes. Um, and so like we got to do we got to do a classic, which we don't get to do many like full Shakespeare classics in in Waco all the time. So like that was nice. I loved working with everybody over the summer. We got to do outdoor theater, mm-hmm. which is another thing you don't always get to do, especially in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> in the middle of summer. <laughs> but we it's did it. Degrees and outside. it was great. It was. It was and so much fun. you know, we were talking about adaptations earlier. Mm-hmm. Um and we didn't do and how we did Romeo and Juliet was a little different. Mm-hmm. It was a smaller cast. On, very much on purpose mm-hmm. we chose to really focus in on these two families who were at an ideological war with one another as opposed mm-hmm. to this whole community torn apart by these two families so mm-hmm. it was a much more focused familial drama how mm-hmm. we chose to do it and how we set it was in the 1960s so mm-hmm. the costumes were fabulous and you know it felt uh, familiar but in still in kind of a, a period setting it had a particular place in time and history mm-hmm. um, and the families were religiously different we mm-hmm. had the catholic capulets and we had the protestant montagues and then we had kind of the more secular figure which was the friar lawrence mm-hmm. so the person who traditionally is the most religious figure is in this case the least religious figure and he's the one calling for peace, mm-hmm. which really has something interesting to say about the times in which we find ourselves when it's so often, and this is coming from someone who's seminary and trained, who's, who faith is important to, but I look at you know people around me to whom faith is important, and I, and I have to ask, I'm like, why is it that the people who should be promoting peace are so often the ones violating peace? Mm. Um, and mm-hmm. so this play had something really interesting to say, particularly in a city in which the majority of people who live here would deem themselves religious in one sense or another. 
Mm. Yeah. It was it was a good show. It was really good. I liked working on it. And I got I liked getting to play Mercutio. Mercutio is such a fun character in the show. And of course, like normally it's a guy, and so like you have <laughs> you deal with that. And so it was very interesting to think of like what Mercutio looks like as a girl in a gang in the nineteen seven in the nineteen sixties. Um, and so like that was fun that was a fun research period. And then also getting to like interpret Mercutio's lines. Cause like typically the Queen Mab monologue is very like um so mercutio's like in love with romeo right um and so like it was it was very interesting to think about that in the context of the show like there's a lot of theories going around about the show that like mercutio is actually in love with romeo and so like in the traditional context that's like very homoerotic relationship and so like that being a girl uh, i was like I could be a little in love with Romeo or I could not so like getting to interpret that also was super fun and interesting um because you know then then you get to do it completely new like just a completely different thing so it was fun I had a lot of I had a lot of fun on that show what about you Mackenzie when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, <laughs> Juliet was an absolute dream. I have been waiting to get my hands on that role for a very long time, as you probably could have guessed. Um, I just, I, I, nothing is, I, at least for me, nothing was quite as exhilarating as running on stage and starting our act two with the Gallop a Pace monologue, which I just think is one of the most beautiful speeches that Shakespeare wrote. I just, it was exhilarating. And as a young woman getting to play Juliet and um, being able to give agency to this character who for so much of history has been played as a very passive, um, damsel in distress type of character. And so to be able to just bring a lot of agency and like I, I would say vibrancy to this role. Um, it just it was it was just everything and that will always be a role that I will cherish for like the rest of my life. Um, but also from a performance standpoint, I am very passionate about doing Shakespeare on location, especially outdoors and in the venue that we have, um, which is like this outdoor amphitheater. Um, and so Shakespeare was traditionally performed outdoors in this like circular type venue um, at the Globe and all those other theaters that are like that. Um, and, and with the audience outside and the audience is in very close proximity and it was light outside and like for the first half of our production, it's light outside. And so the way that the audience feeds into the performance and the way that you can feed into them because you can see them and they are so close and there is no hiding at all in this venue at all. Like you can't hide from the audience they can see everything and you can see everything. Just the way that it works is very reminiscent of the way that it would have worked back in the early modern period. And so I think that it's just so key to understanding the text and like what this stuff is made to do and how it is meant to feel as an actor to get to do that in that type of space. It's like the closest thing you can get to actually performing at the Globe, I would say. Um, 
So artistically fulfilling question mark, check. <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome. It was a good show. Um, what, el- what else did I do this year? Um, and then I went in, I did more classic like theater. We did, a, I did a traditional um, version of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella over the summer, which one of my dream roles is to play Cinderella in that show because Brandy and Whitney Houston. Um, and this time I got to play the godmother. So I've checked off one of those like dream career roles yeah. for me. Um, and it was so much fun. Like I love doing, I love doing a good classical play <laughs> most of the time. Um, yeah. And this was one of those times where I really got to enjoy it because I love the Godmother songs in that show, and I love the way that she interacts with Cinderella. So it was a lot of fun. I was, I was glad to do it. It was so much fun. So that was another highlight. Yeah, and um, I got to see a play that I'd written be workshopped, which was really cool. Um, we had some episodes about that as well, so I don't have to like go into tremendous detail. Um, but it was, as Mackenzie said, really exciting to see something that you write come to life, right? Mm-hmm. That was one of her highlights as well. Um, and I got to take it one step further and see it be performed, mm-hmm. which was really, really important um, for me as a writer and getting to see that, you know, like what I'm doing is working and that the stories I'm telling are important. Um, And then even one other layer to that is that I got to act in the play that I'd written. Um, And oftentimes I would not necessarily suggest that a playwright do that, even to myself. Um, Oftentimes I would much prefer to be a little bit more on the outside to like really see how the play is taking shape and taking furious notes and all the things. Um, But because this play was so personal to me, I chose to audition for the show I wanted to be in it and ended up getting cast and it not only was a really cathartic experience for me because the story was so personal but it really reminded me that oh wait Trent you're an actor um I not that I haven't acted um but I've often I've well I've primarily acted in the past few years out of necessity I've been asked to fill in roles I've you know and I because I've been primarily been directing mm-hmm. so I've been directing so much these past few years that I haven't gone out and auditioned for shows really mm-hmm. I've been asked to be in shows but that's like not the same thing and it's u- usually a last minute fill-in situation because people know I can memorize fast and that's not the same thing as like digging into a rehearsal process etc cetera, etc cetera. um And so getting to do this show from start to finish was really a cool thing for me as a professional to be able to take a step back and say, wait a second. Yes, you're a director and a playwright and a dramaturg, and that's like primarily how you've moved through this profession. But you're an actor as well. And I was just so affirmed through that process. The director was so encouraging. And I mean, she was so complimentary and uplifting. And like, how have you not done this? Like, how, how is this not what you're doing? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and I've, I got to act a couple of more times after that show this year. And I, but, and I don't think I would have done it necessarily if I hadn't done that show first. Mm-hmm. It was a really nice kind of re-entry into saying like, oh, it may be a smaller part of your career and that's okay, but you still get to claim it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm working to like 
add actor to the way that I talk about myself. Um, but that project is what like reignited that spark in me to say, oh, no, I also act. And so that was a really cool part of this last year and a good reminder for all of us to like remember that there are parts of us that like might lie dormant for a season. But it doesn't mean that it's not like a part of us. It just mm-hmm. means that like it may not be as frequent for a while, but it's not to say that it's not still true. Mm-hmm. Just to say that just because you haven't done it for a while or just because it's not the bulk of your work, it doesn't mean that it's not part of your multi-hyphenate, as we like to say in theater. Mm-hmm. It's not part of your multi-hyphenate personality, part of your multi-hyphenate career. There is a There are moments... Sometimes where you're like, oh, I am this, because a lot of a lot of being in the arts sometimes is just like, I don't know if I'm doing a good job or I'm doing it. That's that's yeah. that's what I, that's what's happening is I'm doing it. Imposter so syndrome comes with the territory. Oh yeah, real bad, real bad. And so it's nice to have those moments where you're affirmed in what you're doing. And so um, that's awesome. Absolutely. So it was a it was a banger year. Yeah, it was. <laughs> we all killed it. Really and Mackenzie, you talked about seeing a show at the Globe, but you didn't really talk about, you know, how you ended up in London at the Globe. And mm-hmm. if one of your highlights isn't getting into a <laughs> ma- academic master's program related to theater, then mm-hmm. you're wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> you don't be sorry. You just haven't talked about it yet. Um, I, oh. I, I bring it up because I would love to hear you talk just a little bit about You know, we spend most of our time talking about directing and acting and we have episodes coming about designing and different things, right? We talk about the production of theater, but there is like this other side of it that is more academic and they influence each other, right? So you're primarily an actor who now is moving through the world in London more primarily as an academic. Mm -hmm. And so talk a little bit about about that you you literally moved to another country in order to make that transition so mm-hmm. like why is this important to you <laughs> okay oh boy um well I, I love theater history I I think I fell in love with it my sophomore year of undergrad um and more importantly I love Shakespeare obviously and I think that like text study is like the coolest thing ever I think that it's important to know what you're saying if you're saying anything on stage um <laughs> Shakespeare or not but um, I, I just think that the study of how one of like, I guess the cornerstones of modern drama, I, I just think the study of how we got to where we are today is really important into to how we continue to create and how we move forward. And I think it's also equally important to understand like how we got here. Um, but what I find just, I just, I find so fascinating is like we're sitting in these lectures and we talk about how would these early modern audiences have reacted to these productions and how would these productions have come together? How would the playwrights and the actors and the directors and all of this stuff feel about these productions? And honestly, I don't think it's very different. I think we are humans and we've always been humans and actors have always been actors and playwrights have always been playwrights. And I just, there's like this beautiful, like overarching theme. And like, I I just, I really, I don't think it's that different. I think that audiences, I mean, granted, like societal ideas of things like the patriarchy and race and stuff like that are very different today than what they were in the, the 1600s. 
but I think that the way that theater can impact us and speak to us and the way that we consume media has not changed. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I bring this up because I think that it's really easy to forget how intellectual the work that we do also is, right? Mm -hmm. I think that people who aren't actively involved in theater don't understand that there actually is such a highly intellectual component to producing art, Mm -hmm. right? It's easy to just write off actors as divas, and we make those jokes ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And it's easy to just write off directors as, like, people who like making decisions and they have god complexes right mm-hmm. and, and and we make those jokes ourselves too right and and the list goes on um you know designers or people that can't make it as painters and whatever right like we have these ideas and these stereotypes that like a lot of this is just kind of like fun mm-hmm. right how often yeah. do we hear people calling it a hobby as opposed to a profession right yes um but there's something really smart about what we do when we do it right and it requires thought and education and being well read and knowing a lot of things about a lot of things Mm -hmm. um i was actually having a conversation with my boyfriend like this last weekend um and what we were talking about was the fact that i am really pretty intelligent Mm -hmm. um i have a master's degree I had a very highly accomplished undergraduate degree and the list goes on. He, his background is math and economics. He's a data analyst. And so when people ask me what he does, their response is, Oh, you got yourself a smart one. Right. It's like, and and he is, he's Mm -hmm. so super smart. Right. Mm -hmm. But if he tells people that I'm a theater director, that is not how they respond. Right. No one is going to be like, Oh, you sure got yourself a smart one with that theater director. Like, that's just not. It's going to be more like, oh, so you're going to be the one supporting the two of you, right? Yes. Like, like that's what he gets. Mm -hmm. Whereas because he's doing, like, a left-brained career or however you want to frame that, Mm -hmm. people are like, oh, wow, he's so smart. Mm -hmm. Like, people who haven't met him, they just assume if if he's doing math and economics, he must be super smart, right? (laughs) And, and like, it's true. Mm -hmm. He's very smart. But guess what? So am I. (laughs) But because our careers are different, we're framed differently from the Mm get-go. He gets to be seen as intellectual because of the career that he's chosen. Whereas I get to be like a dream chaser hobbyist because of the career that I've chosen. And people don't see behind the curtain to understand how much intellect it requires to make good art. It is not actually an easy thing. It requires a lot of different skills. And that's not just talking as a director. That's talking like what actors have to bring into a role to do it well. It requires so much. The thoughts that designers have to have to showcase a piece in the appropriate way. The thoughts, the, the expertise that dramaturgs bring into a room and the knowledge that they have about history and about literature and about i mean the list goes on right everyone who's involved with the production even stage managers which are like the most underthinked people on earth like Mm -hmm. their managerial skills 
are wild, right? Mm-hmm. I say all the time, like, if theater people just ran things, it would go so much smoother, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's because we are so used to, uh, we literally create worlds and then make them run effectively. Mm-hmm. And that's somehow not seen as a difficult undertaking. Like, that's insane. I think it's one of the, well, I think it's a convergence of a lot of things. First off, our society's, like, place on monetary value. Like, mm. everybody thinks that if you're making a lot of money, obviously you must be very smart, i.e. some other people that, you know, we've seen recently in the news um, that I hate. <laughs> um, so, like, we think that in order to be making money, you have to be in one of these things that is, you know, like, uber smart and very, very intelligent. Like, it we associate those things together we associate the people who are struggling with not making very much money and therefore that there is their job is less than like it feels like because there's so many tv shows there's so many plays there's so many movies there's so many forms of entertainment there's so many um art pieces that somehow that is much easier than uh, you know, doing than sitting at a computer and working math equations. Like, it's it's not at all how it actually is. You actually have to be very intelligent because I'm not just doing paint by numbers as an artist. I'm thinking conceptually of how this stroke will turn into somebody's arm, or I'm thinking about conceptually how these paint colors work together. Like, it's every aspect of artistry and theater, especially because it brings all of those things together, which. I think a lot of people discount that there is a lot of math in theater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, which, like, you know, that's one of our, our private jokes is, like, we're not math majors. We're theater majors. We just need to know how many zeros are on the check. Um, but there is a lot of math. There's a lot of research. There's a lot of history, things that we have to go through just on a, a different aspects of how we're involved in a production Mm -hmm. if you are if you are part of conceptualizing a production then you're thinking about history you're thinking about timing all of those things um, in order to make a piece work and it's a lot of work it's a lot of intelligent work that has to be done yes so yeah did you have anything to add to that Mackenzie madam academic I'm just like (laughs) I'm slightly triggered. (laughs) I just, there's just such a stigma around theater people just not being intelligent. Like it's just such an uphill battle. Um, And I don't, I don't know how we go about fixing that. Um, But yeah. We need theater to be worth like $10 million. (laughs) Yeah. And then people will respect us. I hate that I had to say that. It's just, yeah, I mean, and I know that this is feels like a little bit of a tangent, but it's it's really not because we're thinking about what we've learned from this last year, the things mm-hmm. that we've thought about. And the fact of the matter is that Mackenzie is an actor mm-hmm. who got into a highly competitive academic program at one of the top universities in the world. What, like it's hard? Stop! No, I'm, but I'm being serious yeah. because no. the thing is, is that like, that was a you are reference. yeah I, I liked it <laughs> but like you are smart and one of the top universities in the world mm-hmm. recognizes that actors mm-hmm. are more than just like spotlight hogs right mm-hmm. like the people who understand what we have to offer 
understand, mm-hmm. right? And so, like, they didn't, if, if anything, in your particular field, you being an actor is a huge asset, right? Because mm-hmm. who better to understand the words of a playwright than an actor who has spent their life figuring out how to speak them aloud, mm-hmm. right? Right. But there is an intellect to what we do the academic side of what we do is rigorous and it's hard and it Mm -hmm. is so easily forgotten and it's not the thing that we talk about the most right yeah it's not what we spend the most of our time conversing about but for those of us inside of the field it's kind of just understood that all of us are accomplished in our own rights and have our different areas of expertise and that's part of why it takes a village to put on a play is because all of us do have different experiences and academic expertises that we bring to the table And there have been, I forget what the name of these articles, but there have been a few articles that talk about how comprehensive theater degrees actually are Mm -hmm. and the things that it actually prepares you for. And they've been like, oh, it actually prepares you to be a CEO, a Mm -hmm. marketing manager. Like, it can put you in a bunch of different places. So there's a very intellectual part to being an artist. Um, so let this be the year that you think about the the intellectual um, thought that had to go into the productions that you've seen. If you see a show on TV, even if it's a comedy, even if you're like, this is very lowbrow comedy, think of how many people had to put in time and effort to make sure mm-hmm. that those jokes worked. Yeah. Um, or the people that had to put on, uh, put effort into the costumes because like, those people are not naked when you're watching them, unless you're watching Naked and Afraid, and that's a whole other show. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> think about think about those things because there's a lot of aspects that we just don't think about when we're consuming yeah. media. And I think part of being a thoughtful consumer of the media that comes into your life is thinking about the people who made it and what they put into it. Yeah, and to bring a few of these things together, I think one of the highlights that we haven't talked about for the three of us is starting this podcast where we get to like have these conversations with each other and with you. And I've had more than one person be like, wow, y'all are really smart. You know, like listening to the podcast and hearing some of the conversations we have and we're thoughtful and we're educated and we have fun, but also people learn from the things that we have to say and I think that people don't expect a quote-unquote theater podcast to necessarily be those things that two hundred thousand dollar degree I have hanging up in my room it's worth it hearing that number out loud like hurt my heart (laughs) I know I don't like to think about it Yeah. Oh, okay. This was this was awesome. Do we have any like thoughts to wrap us up as we as we go into the vi- as we venture out into the new year? Um can, sort of related to like what we've been talking about. If you're a young theater person listening to this and like you're going through your training and stuff, I I think the mindset that because obviously, okay, it's very apparent that I have dealt with being called like dumb because I'm a theater person my whole life. Um, it took me until like, I think my junior or senior year of college to be like, mm, I'm actually smart. Mm-hmm. And I think it has a lot to do with how you talk to yourself and how other people talk to you. And I think as soon as like, you were like, wait a second, I'm smart. And like, stop like thinking that you have to fit into the box of 
a Glee character. Sorry, I hate to say it. Um, but as soon as, like, you stop putting yourself in this box and letting other people put you in the box, you will go through so much personal growth. And I, you'll stop limiting yourself, which I think is oftentimes, like, the number one limiting factor. Um, so I urge you, going into 2023, to do things that scare you. Don't talk bad to yourself and push yourself. Ooh, that's good advice. Very good. Here is here's to 2023, everyone. We hope that you will join us in raising a glass, literal or metaphorical, and we hope that together we can consider a better, more fruitful, braver year. Yeah. Let's let's imagine this. You can find more about us through our Instagram, Imagine This Theater Pod, Theater with an R-E, or Wild Imaginings Waco, or wildimaginingswaco.com, and we are produced by Rogue Media Networks. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a Rogue Media Network production.